Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the 67th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we're talking about working with non-actors, people who are new to a film set, how to help them out, how to make things happen, and how to make your life a little bit easier. And then we're also talking about loyalty in this business, who you're loyal to and why you should be loyal to them, and also how to maybe break some bad news to an old friend. Pretty much this entire episode is about what we've been working on lately. Matt, you have been doing this show. It's uh, You're doing eight 22-minute episodes? Eight 22-minute episodes. Uh, it hasn't been officially announced yet, so I can't uh, divulge too, too much. Um, but it's for one of those digital platforms out there that we all work for all the time. Uh, it's eight 22-minute episodes, so it's a little bit different than... Um, kind of the other stuff that we've done where normally you do like an 8 by 10 or an 8 by 11 episode. This is proper broadcast length, which is really nice. Um, so it'll have the potential to go to broadcast in other countries, etc., etc., etc. But it's been really fun. But it is uh, starring a lot of people who are new to acting. And in addition, the full screen show that I think should be out by now had a lot of performers who were used to the youtubers basically right so right. they they know how to perform but they're not trained in you know kind of the traditional theatrical arts the same way right so in this show too you have people that are performances kind of a some like a type of musician of sorts right right yeah they're performers they're naturally gifted they've got that star power that charisma that x factor but they don't necessarily know how to harness that for the camera yet right so i'm going to guess what things they might not be crazy good at Ooh, this this will be a fun game compared yeah, to love it. Uh, trained experienced actors so hitting their marks yep or knowing what a mark is <laughs> right knowing yep. i mean i'm sure we've talked about this on the podcast before but you know a mark usually is a t on the floor that you put your feet facing the the top of the t but i've have you ever had an actor like a brand new actor that's never had a mark before sure. go and stand on it backwards 
Oh, no, that's adorable, though. That's really Like sweet. putting their heels and, where their toes are supposed to go? And I should say, just in case anyone is trying to guess, I think we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about working with non-actors in general. So, right, right, right. Like, not, not you you're specifically, not, but... N- yeah, not my specific cast. Um, also, uh, in almost every circumstance, on any time I've ever worked with a non-actor, they're always very eager to learn. So it's it's more about realizing what you assume someone knows versus what you need to catch them up on a little bit. Right. You know, I just did a shoot with an actress that's new. I don't think she had been on set that much. I didn't know. I cast her off tape and there's one of these situations where you say something like, Hey, you know, on action, just give it two beats and then come in, Mm -hmm. you know, say this line and then go off camera left or whatever. And then you say action and you see that they, they didn't do the beat thing and they didn't quite hit their mark and they didn't go off the right direction of the camera. And you instantly realize like, okay, this person has no idea what I just told them. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have to, which is, t- it's totally fine, but you have to figure out a way to like teach them those things without embarrassing them in front, right. in of, front the of everyone. Yeah. And crew. Yeah. No, it's, it's really uh, a terrifying thing to be on set when you don't know what's going on and there's so much lingo like even just saying two beats is the thing that we take for granted because you know you think about beats all the time right we think of in terms of those things but like you have to catch yourself and realize like oh what what am what do i know what have i internalized versus what uh what would a person who has never been on this sort of set do you know and so it's like i think one of the things on this show in particular that i was really thoughtful about was making sure that like everyone knew that it was way better to ask a question and to ask for clarification than it is to um to do the wrong to, thing to, to whiff yeah i had an actor once um not who didn't know what a mark was just graze right past it mm-hmm. in and like a real cool shot it was like a really awesome like slow-mo explosion epic explosion you can only you do know. once it, it was almost that. It was like the big shot of the thing. Yeah. And uh, that person just drifted, just flew right past that mark, fell out of focus, and it, uh, boy, it was funny. It, that that one was like, you know, the crew was very professional, but it could, you couldn't have asked for a better setup for someone to just totally, totally miss a mark. It was great. Right. One of my favorite things that happens with first time actors or people that haven't been on set before, like a lot of the theater actors who are amazing, mm-hmm. sure. you know, yeah. at getting, finding the moment, but aren't really great technically. Like sometimes I'll do a shot where the camera moves into an over the shoulder, you know, mm-hmm. a dolly or a push right. in. And like a lot of new actors like try to get their shoulder out of the way of the mm-hmm. camera. Mm. And you're like, that's no, sweet. no, that's the, the shoulder. I that's, want to see your shoulder. What we need. Yeah. They'll also, um, like memorizing dialogue sometimes is harder for mm-hmm. new actors, especially, especially, and this is more dig it writers when the dialogue's like not good. Sure. I find yeah. when the dialogue is good and responsive and makes sense, it's mm-hmm. a lot, lot, lot easier to memorize. Yeah. Well, basically if there's a motivation to it or not, you know, they, there's a flow to the conversation and you know, there's a cause and effect to it. Then, the other actor's line inspires the next line that the person has to respond to. Yeah, on Miss 2059, we had to do this shot where an actor walks over to this science fiction device and has to say, like, 
yeah, this is like the quantum, you know, physical or mechanical sure. something. Mumbo jumbo. And he or she just could not get the, I mean, they're a very experienced actor, but they could not get the science words out. Mm-hmm. And we ended up just like writing the name of the thing right on it <laughs> and putting it on it so that when this actor looked at it, they could say it. It could be like the mumbo jumbo transponder. Yeah. yeah, I feel bad for um, performers who like play doctors. You know, there's a lot right. of like, or like any of those procedural shows where it's like, we need 50 cc's of this and give me a cardiac respirator, blah, blah, blah. Like, they understand, re- really, you're just saying, give me my tools over and over again. That And that's, boy, that's hard to act. Other things with non-actors. The lighting, of course, like, y- you can tell when an actor knows how to find their light. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also, I remember this is something that I actually learned when I was an extra way back in the day. But people would say, like, find the lens, which mm-hmm. means, like, that you are not visible on the camera right now because mm-hmm. you're standing, you're stacked behind someone else. And so that's another thing that I, I find myself saying to a lot of new people, especially when there's multiple people in the shot, like, right. hey, the cam- this is camera wants to see you. Just make sure you're in a place where it can see you. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting about the current show I'm on is that it's mockumentary. And so... Uh, blocking and line. There's a lot of stuff that's very loose. That's I think um, given our performers a lot of freedom. You is know, it all handheld except for the interviews. It's 100% handheld except for interviews. When those interviews are directly into the lens, mm. um, you're allowed to look at the camera. It's like office style. The camera crew is there. Uh, we're shooting two cameras. Oftentimes, they wrote the episode. You know, like it's a lot of writer performers. So. In that way, it's been really nice because you have the freedom to rework a line without having to go like, you know, tell the writer, hey, listen, this isn't working. We need to fix it. Like they're the person saying. Right. Say this in your words. Uh, those are my words. Yeah, those are my words. <laughs> exactly. But but so there's no ego with it. So they've been very, uh, very fun with it. And also they don't have um, bad habits yet, you know. And so uh, I've been able to teach them how to improv the way I like to, which is really fun. Um, they've been how do really, you do that? Well, mostly it's through alting, but um, so rather than, it's it's not pure improv in the sense that um, we're not just kind of doing a full-on fun run, but, you know, if you, if each character understands the game of the scene and what their character's role is in that game, then, um the alts kind of write themselves. Can you give us an example? I mean, is it like a TJ Miller type run? Like it's hotter in here than, uh, mm. you know, balls yeah. in a... Yeah, yeah. So, so, so like, a, like a, a, a TJ, TJ Miller run or, or, or like just pure alting of like a good burn, like adding different jokes to it. Like it's hotter than a, you know, squirrel's nutsack. It's hotter than, you know, a cold day in July. I don't know, whatever. Like right. alting that stuff, that's very easy, right? So you... you Typically, you just get into a clean single and you throw one-liners at them. That stuff uh, is fun and I think is is neat because it keeps people in the moment. There's a surprise to it. There's a there's fun to it. You know, and right. that's, that part of that is just setting the tone. Oftentimes, you use the scripted joke, but every once in a while, there is something that's really fun and special. There's you, something. Sorry to interrupt, but something interesting about that with a non-actor is like if you do do that, if you see that they're just stiff and having trouble and so worried that nobody's laughing at what they're saying, right? like you can throw them like 10 mm-hmm. things to say after you. And sometimes people might even be laughing at you because you're saying it, but 
they'll feel like people are laughing and yeah gives you a little like, confidence yeah, and an like, interesting exercise to just do in the middle of a scene when your actor is just like nervous that they're not mm-hmm. doing well because they'll realize that they're like everyone's on board with them right from that exercise as opposed what? to them being alone on an island and it's sometimes it's fun like you'll pull them aside you'll give them like whisper a couple secret jokes for them mm-hmm. just to kind of like give them give them a little arsenal of like okay like this joke isn't working or the scene is a little tired and we've been shooting for, you know, 11 hours already. And um, here's a way to kind of just spice things up a little bit, whether that makes it into the show or not. It kind of just juices the um, the atmosphere a little bit. And that's been really fun. Um, and then you so you were asking about how to improv in other ways. It, it, that That's actually a really good example of it. Or, you know, I'll rephrase a line. You know, like mm-hmm. you kind of switch classes just to kind of get people out of that rhythm. You know, if you're worried about memorizing too much, it can get a little sing-songy. That's a common thing right. with new actors. They just want to... There's like a cadence. They like want to get it right. Pentameter. Yeah, exactly. It's like, this is how I say my line. And I can, you know, faster or slower, it's this is how I say my line. Right. Like they're focusing on the words as opposed to right. what why they're saying. So I would say, well, try it. Um, my line, this is how I say it. You can't sing that song anymore, you know? Do you give line reads? Never. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, we talked about that. Yeah, I'm just not a line read guy. There's no right answer on that, though. Yeah. As much I, as I'm people not would like it. to think there is. I, you know, I think uh, I think that, yeah, there's. it's totally okay. And sometimes people want you to say the line, like want you to give you the line reading just so that you can move on. Well, a Maybe. non-actor isn't primed with that idea that line reads are so bad, right? you know? But even when I just did that thing with Tim Meadows, he'd be like, dude, just tell me exactly what you want me to do and I'll do it. Yeah. you know, when and you're doing a do commercial, yeah. there's 800 people telling you that they didn't think, like, Tim Meadows smiled enough or whatever. I think I talked right. about this before. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it, you just got to feel out the actor. There are right. actors where you give them a line read. It's like the most offensive thing you can do. Well, the thing that I don't care for about line readings is that I am always looking to bring in as many collaborators as I can. And so I think that the thing about line reading is that it basically negates the option for the actor to bring their own thing to it. I'm telling you how to do it rather than you showing me the way that you would do it. Well, right. But the line read is not something you start with. It's like after take six. Sure. And a lot of times with comedy, it's like... I think it would be a little funnier if you hit the this word and this mm-hmm. word. Yeah. Um, and then they do it and it's not funny. And then at some point you're like, can you just say like, can you just say it like this? A yeah. squirrel's nutsack. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, when, when you're talking about the cadence of a joke, to me rather, I, I don't often say punch because punch will often lead to a flattened performance. You know, like people don't push words in reality that often. Uh, but I will talk about reversals. So I think that's kind of the other way that you get to the switcheroo or the change in energy that you're talking about. So it's like, sad, 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 but then a happy thought, you know, that's another way of right. asking for a punch without, with, but but grounding it a little bit. I yeah, think. that's a good, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. I'll try it out next time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the big thing that's been really wonderful um, that, you know, we had the luxury on with this show just due to its kind of scope and size uh, and smart producing, frankly, is um, we have an acting coach on and um, it just so happens that I'm married to the acting coach. 
Oh, that was fast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, showman's <laughs> man. Uh, no, no. Uh, Chrissy's, um, you know, coached uh, for a long, long time. And so we kind of like early on set up a little bit of a boot camp. And it was like, it was great because I wasn't quite as worried about getting the actors in shape and could actually, you know, produce the show basically. And so, uh, but what was really nice about it is that as a collaborator, we speak the exact same language because she's so dialed into performance and is constantly studying and going to different places. We're always talking about the things that she's learning and incorporating into her craft. So as a result, um, I knew that she was going to be teaching them how to speak the language that I speak because she taught it to me, basically. That's awesome. I mean, having a yeah. partner in the performance and and rehearsing is just such a pleasure. Like, a, you know. yeah, yeah. No, it, I mean, it's been essential. Like, she's running rehearsals while I'm like looking at lighting and stuff, and then I hop in, you know, tweak things a tiny bit, but they're so much closer to ready beforehand. It's right. been pretty tremendous. And how are you doing the blocking? Are you having them act it out and then basing the blocking off of them? Or do you have an idea of how you want the actors to move mm-hmm. in the scene and how you want to cover it? And then you tell the actors to do it. Well, so it's been interesting because of the mockumentary stuff. Uh, every set, for the most part, I would say probably 85% of our sets are 360. And so I have really been actively trying to make the blocking such that it is hard on the cameras. So speaking of like um, the actors not having any habits yet, they don't know to cheat out. Right. You know, I don't know that they really understand how to find a lens or what cheating out even means exactly yet mm-hmm. because I haven't had to teach it to them because I've kind of been doing the opposite of that. Like I've, I'm trying to stack things more. I'm like my favorite singles on the show so far have been like, mostly back and shoulder and then catching a little bit of the other person's face. You know, that's the way that you make mockumentary feel a little more authentic, a little dirtier, a little looser. So I've been really lucky in that case. And other things where I've been working with non-actors and you need them to like be more specific with uh, and technical, it it makes it much harder for sure. And, And that's really where you kind of get into the realizing the technical jargon that you're speaking is going over people's heads. Like I'm, I'm about getting them in the moment, finding beats, finding those human beats. Cause they're pretty terrible to each other. You know, they're like the characters, of, the characters are bad people as that's kind of the concept of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a little bit curb your enthusiasm in that way. And so it's just about, uh, understanding why they're bad people basically. You know, like, why are they so terrible to one another? And, like, making that relatable in a way. And so grounding those performances when they're doing kind of off-the-wall terrible things. That's cool. It is Cheating is, like, another one of those words that yeah. it what means the fuck does so that much mean? to yeah. us and so little to so many people. Yeah. Or something just totally different to so yeah. many people. The one last thing that I've noticed with non-actors for me personally is, like, even though they are nervous to be on set and don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing. Sometimes they don't quite prioritize your production <laughs> in the same way that you, that a professional actor, like a professional actor, you tell them to get there at 6 a.m., they'll probably show up at like 5.50 a.m. They'll know their lines and they'll have a good idea of what's going to happen that day. Right. Uh, and then non-professional actors, I did this thing on, when I did uh, one of the Quiznos jobs, we found this guy <laughs> that... That was great. It looked exactly like the character he was impersonating. It was so good. And 
he showed up like two hours late to set and we, everyone was calling him before he got there. And, you know, it was like, oh, sorry, my alarm didn't go off. And then like, I had to get like breakfast. And then and we're like, dude, first of all, we have food on set. Yeah, there's more food here than <laughs> yes. wherever you went. Second of all, like, dude, you can't be late. And yeah. and then we're like, in, or, you know, actresses sometimes will do their makeup before they get to set and you're like, and they'll be late. And you're like, dude, that's like we are going to do here. your makeup in a specific yeah, way yeah. here. So that's like something that's that's also difficult to teach people, especially like Kara, my wife, was in a commercial with this musician that was famous, but he'd never been in a commercial before. And he just, you know, showed up late, didn't want to do certain things and and kind of decided he wanted to leave like halfway through. But he was like a celebrity. Right. So it's hard. You no one you have to be super nice to him and make sure he's happy and comfortable and looks good on camera. Yeah, I you know, to me it's a it's a strange thing that we're dealing with where um actors are always kind of put on this ivory tower of like, oh well, you know, you don't want to say something that would upset them because it'll end up coming across on screen or um, you know, it's just best or better to like kind of leave them out of those sorts of concerns. They don't need to know if you're hitting overtime. You know, you don't want to rock the boat, right? And I think that that, there's a lot of wisdom to that, but also there's so much vulnerability and so much um, at stake for an actor because it's their face on screen. You know, most people don't say, oh, that was a bad production. They didn't accommodate enough time for this performance. No one says, oh, the director didn't get a good job of coaxing a good performance out of this actor. They say that is a bad actor. That person is bad at acting. So there's a real vulnerability there that you do need to be conscientious of and protect. But also, on that same line, most people are adults. And so if you're you know, thoughtful about the way that you can kind of get them on your team and explain, like, these are the ramifications for what's happening. I'm trying to keep you from looking stupid. You know, like, I want to give you as much time as you need, and that means that you know, we have these things here so that you can get here on time. How can I help you? Because I want you to look awesome. They want to look awesome as well. Right. You know, and I think at a certain level you get to be such a big star that it kind of doesn't matter. And, you know, uh, who cares if you go into OT? Who cares if you're wasting other people's time? Your time is more valuable than theirs. Sometimes that's literally true. But I think that if you, again, it's that collaboration. And I found that most of the time... Most of the time it works. Sometimes people are just, you know, in their own world. And I think that's when you're super duper duper famous. But also like the the people who are the most famous are the most uh, professional and all t- on time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the household names I've worked with, I never even had to think about having a conversation with them about that stuff. Yeah. And that's how you get to be that famous, frankly. I think we were talking about like Chris Parnell. Was, I, sure. I don't know, someone yeah. told me that he was like, they someone was making a short film and he was in it and it was like this big win that they got him to agree to be in it. He like showed up a little early. He had all his dialogue down. He was like super nice to everyone, like a super generous actor, like didn't need like a trailer or anything, just mm-hmm. sat down on the side, you know, minded his own business, but talked to people that wanted to talk to him and then left and just like gave an incredible performance. And it's like, why can't like the person that this is like the, their first time on set be that chill. Well, which, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Obviously you're nervous when you're on set, but um, I think a lot of new actors too, sometimes feel like they might be taking advantage, be taken advantage of mm-hmm. when they're not 
you know, when they're just kind of being ignored right, because right. we have other things to think about on set. You, you know, I'll, I'll say one other thing that is an interesting thing to have to teach new actors. And that's, uh, I call it the like a water bottle effect. And it's where young people come in and they don't want to be a diva. And so, you know, we'll be running a scene or whatever. And rather than asking a person to go get a water bottle, they'll go grab it themselves because mm-hmm. like they know how to do it. You know, like no need to bug, anyone, bug yeah. anyone about this. The water's right over there. It's no big deal. And God bless them. That's a really sweet instinct. Um, but you learn, and I'll kind of co- walk, walk them through this. We've got a bunch of walkie talkies. We've got people whose job it is to get you water bottles because we want you on set so that we can to to be available so that we can shoot faster so that everyone can go home on time. Right. Because that five minutes you just spent while everyone was waiting for you to get your water bottle. Yeah. Our PA wants to get like $2,000, $2,000 and also like time with their kids. You know, like we, there's a PA there to get you your water bottle so that we all can have a real life basically. Right. Have you ever been like on the second to last setup? And uh, shooting on location somewhere where when you get to the bathrooms, you have to get in a golf cart or something. Mm. And your actor's like, can I go to the bathroom? And you're like, over time, and the sun's mm-hmm. going down. And what, what do you say in that situation? I would say, if the sun is going down, I'd be like, can you hold it till after sundown? Because yeah. then, yes. The answer is yes, then. Um, I would just yell on set, hey, Melissa has to pee. Hurry <laughs> up. Come get on. that light in position. Have we talked about how David Lynch just pees behind trees all the time? Uh, I didn't know that, but I've definitely peed behind the tree or two. Yeah, he's a coffee fiend. And also, you know, it's hard to run away. We had an actress on Miss 2059 pee behind a tree because sure, uh, it took a while. And also those outfits that they wore did not make it easy. <laughs> so I had great appreciation. But, uh, you know, yeah. for a woman, sometimes it's a little more difficult to pee behind a tree than for a man. So before we finish this conversation, just for the new directors that are listening, mm-hmm. just two two words that are probably worth defining just because we use them a lot. One is OT, mm-hmm. talking about overtime, which in California uh, is 12 hours, right? So if you go beyond 12 hours, and this isn't 12 hours from when you start shooting, it's 12 hours from when a person gets the set. Right. Right. Um, and it can Minus be... Minus lunch. Minus lunch, right? So if someone gets to set at like 6 a.m., they can work till 6.30 p.m. if you have a half-hour lunch without you having to pay them overtime. Which is time and a half. And then we go to like double time, which they get twice as much money per hour. And then we go to golden time, which is they get their entire rate every hour. And that's like at like 16 hours. Yeah, something something crazy. crazy, Yeah. I think it's 12, 14, 16. Yeah. Is Um, that right? Yeah, but I've that's, never hit golden time before. Oh, I have as an I've extra, never, and it oh, is you make a ton of money. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's like you want to hit that golden time because you time. just get rich. Keep going, yeah, hang out. But producers never want you to hit even one minute past twelve hours, so that's yeah. why we're always, always, always being warned about overtime. We can't go into OT. We can't go into OT. And sometimes, you know, the truck drivers that bring all the equipment get there before everyone else. So, mm-hmm. like, they're trying to get you to wrap, like, an hour and a half before overtime so that you have time for everyone to pack up the equipment, clean the, up, get the, the trucks GIT ready. to dump everything. All yeah. The, all that stuff. Yeah. So, it gets real frustrating because they're like, we gotta finish now and you're done. And you're like, wait, we still have an hour and a half. And they're like, yeah, yeah. but we need to. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't get that shot I wanted because sure. you were yelling at me. Um, and the other thing I wanted to define, even though we, we talked about it a little bit, is cheating. So 
we use that word to mean a million different things. Usually the way you said it, Matt, cheat out to the camera means to like kind of angle your body in a way so that that the camera sees more of you. Yeah, exactly. But also it can be used in the context of uh, moving object, moving the set or objects so that um, the angle is more favorable you know, right. there's a little bit of flexibility with the way that pe- the audience will perceive the geography of a space versus what the literal layout of a room is. Right. Let's say you have a plant that you want to see in the frame, and but it's just outside of the frame. You might cheat that into the frame. Right. Even though in the previous shot, it was it would have been out of frame. Right. Yeah. Or even an actor. Can you cheat to your left like two steps? Yeah. I, I find we were shooting a bunch of um, tabletop scenes. Uh a couple days ago and that's where you you're just cheating like crazy because eye lines are so hard to match when you're without jumping the line basically so you'll find a lot of people kind of swimming a little bit in their seat basically to find a good angle that's also not on the wrong side of the 180 line and all blah 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 right. there's this thing stuff. it's kind of interesting there's this thing about dinner scenes with like a glass of wine you know mm-hmm. that if you're shooting like a medium shot of somebody uh, and they're looking to the left of camera and they put down their wine glass on the right side of camera. When you reverse that shot, the wine glass that was now on the right side of camera is on the left side of camera and it keeps bouncing back and forth, left Mm -hmm. and right when you cut back and forth. So it's like one of the challenges of editing a dinner scene is you try to frame shots where the wine glass is like out of them or they're always putting them, both actors are putting them on the same side mm-hmm. uh, of the eye line. So interesting stuff. Well, cool. Well, yeah, working with non-actors, it's uh, it's tough. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but I it's think... fun. It can be rewarding. And it's really, I think the more, like you said, the more the people are interested in sure. learning, the better it goes. Yeah. And I think just kind of being an educator and being a friend and making sure that it's an open environment is really the key to all of that working. Along as long as they're open to it, but like I think if you, you know, get on the level with them early on, then they'll, the more open they'll be, basically, and hire an acting coach. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> you know, is a, a real a real luxury. privilege. Yeah. Get, yeah. So the next thing I wanted to talk about it's this really loaded word I think, and not just in the film industry in the world. It's a word I don't really like very much, but uh, that I think about sometimes, and it's loyalty. Uh, and how that plays into the politics of film. Uh, there are three different ways that, that I've been kind of dealing with it lately. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, which I think is the most common thing, is when you have a creative partner, you're working with them on a project, and at some point you realize that they don't really want to take the project in the same direction you want to take it to, mm-hmm. and you see an opportunity to do something with that project but it might require leaving the person you started on that project with. Has that yeah. ever, have you ever been in that situation? Yeah, certainly I've been in that situation a handful of times, um, especially when I was younger. I think it's kind of part of the reason why I like to write alone, you know, is so that things, chain, chain of title is very clear, all of that stuff. But certainly it still kind of comes up, especially when uh, I've been doing more directing for hire and like EPing for hire, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, so the other day I was hanging out with a friend and we were saying we, we both really want to make short films. Uh, and I had had an idea for a short or just like a real kernel of an idea. It wasn't really much, but 
it had to do with the this device mm-hmm. type thing or piece of clothing and I had pitched him something it could do and then he pitched me a different version of he's like oh what if it did this thing instead mm-hmm. I was like oh yeah that's really great and then we can do this and this and this and we kind of were plussing on each other and then we had this concept right for a short film right and then he's like oh maybe I'll like I'll start a google doc and I'll write it up and he wrote some stuff and it's the stuff he wrote is in like a totally different direction mm-hmm. than I wanted to make a really small contained short that I can shoot myself. Right. And he wrote like, like a big 10 scenes in thing. 10 different yeah. locations. Yeah. So in this situation, luckily I told him what I was thinking and I even sent him some other shorts that were a little bit more right. in the same scope I was thinking of. And I think he's on board with me, but if he wasn't on board with me at that, si- that point, what do I do? Do I just abandon that whole project? Even though it was kind of like my mm-hmm. idea to begin with, or yeah. do I just try to do it without him? Well, I think there's two things. There's two takeaways. Three, actually. Because uh, I've kind of, yeah, certainly I've been in all of these circumstances before. I think ideally you kind of are clear with the terms for what you want out of a project earlier on, right? Um, and and spell it out in paper. That's, yeah, that but is, you're just hanging out with your filmmaker sure, friends. Sure, of course. You're, you're just hanging out. You're spitballing. But like as soon as it becomes a real thing, spell it out. Right. And it's that is I mean, this this is maybe the best piece of advice I can give anyone ever when it comes to creative endeavors. Spell it out. Right. And and it forces you to be honest with yourself and with your partner about what you want. You know, um, I can say practically uh, when I was working on this movie with the writer. Right. uh, That I've kind of Mm. been developing for a while. We had a very frank, hard conversation about it because he's a career screenwriter. I'm a career writer director and um, it was very important to him that if he was not the sole writer on this project, it was a deal breaker because he needed it to launch his career. Right. And that's it. So I have the same, the exact same situation right now with another writer. We're working on a feature, mm-hmm. both really excited about it. it. Hasn't been written yet, but it was originally his idea. We came up with the treatment together. We made like right. a visual deck. He wrote most of the copy of like what went in that deck. Um, and it's all based on these things we've developed together. And I did all the visuals mm-hmm. and he, his, we had that, that talk in the beginning too. He's like, I'm going to be, I want to be the writer. It's mm-hmm. not written by both of us. It's written by me and you're the director. Right. I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine with me. Um, and also people understand that a director's creative vision is a part of, the screenwriting process in a lot of ways people don't uh, if anything people think that the director does more than he does or she does you know right. the other day he said to me by the way because we're talking to some production companies and stuff and I've given them like soft pitches mm-hmm. to see if they'll look at the, our treatment he said by the way you know if you know a, a big production company is interested in this project i'd be okay if they brought in another writer mm, um, interesting which yeah. and he said as long as i'm a producer on it um mm-hmm. I'd be okay with that, which to me is, I would be, I would have been fine with either way. You know, right. it's a little bit of a relief because I haven't really, to be honest, read any of his writing. So who know, like who knows if I'll like it or not, right. but I, I, I've been in situations, I was, a, a, you know, working on a movie last year where the mm-hmm. writer did not want to, would never give up the writing credit and mm-hmm. the production company wanted to rewrite it. And he basically said no and the project no. yeah. ended. Yeah, which is, you know, their own prerogative. But I think if you talk about all that stuff, you know, like I think when I was talking with my writer friend, you know, there was the thought like, what if, you know, Judd Apatow wanted to direct this movie? 
what do I say to that, right? Because he's the writer and I'm the director. And I put in a lot of time, you know, like I did rewriting like fingers on the keyboard with him in a significant way. But because we were clear of like, I'm directing it, this is the work that I'm doing to direct it. You're writing it. This is this is what it has to be in order for this to to work. We'll see if Judd wants to direct the movie, you know. So would you say no to Judd wanting to direct it? I feel like I'm finally at a place where I would say no. I think I think that um it's different if it's a TV show. It's different if it's a TV show for sure. I think that uh I think that I probably would say no, but I also think that I'm in a position where my credits are such that I'm as close to doing a feature as a person can be. You know, like I've just, mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of directing eight episodes of television cross-boarded back to back. I don't think anyone has the ability to, or has the grounds to say he can't do it. No, I mean, the grounds are simple. They're like, with Judd Apatow, we get the money. We get right. the $15 million sure, we need. But with you, Judd we get produces, the $15,000 You know what I mean? Like, that's the difference. So, like, look, if he's the linchpin that gets the movie made and he doesn't want to produce, he like, they have to direct, then, you know, that's a bridge we have to cross. Right. Know? And now if your writing partner said, we got to do this, would you feel like he's being disloyal? Uh, Yeah. So that, yeah, that's interesting. Cause we, uh, he actually has said the opposite. He's been like, I think you're the guy. You're not, not, I think you're got, you're the guy, you're the guy. Like that's the deal we made. Right. Um, so it's more me understanding like, oh, but I think again, it, it comes down to like understanding what the terms of it are, you know, and understanding what people are looking for. And I want this movie to be my first feature. Like, right. like that's the reason that I dug my heels in on it and like put in all that work because I thought that it was the right movie to make. Yeah. But if someone came into you next month and said, Hey, here's a script, um, it's financed, you know, whatever, it's a million dollar comedy, uh, that starts shooting in a month. Can you do it? And you like the script. Um, that's happening. <laughs> um, right. So you're so not loyal to him in terms of time wise, time wise. Right? We talked about it. I you don't him. say like, this is going to be my first movie. I mean, to, to be clear, I haven't been offered this movie, but I did go pitch on something with a financed movie with a solid script and a team attached. Uh, and we talked about it and it was, we came to the realization that me doing that other movie would only help our movie. So that's kind of, I think one of my big takeaways from everything, everything related to this loyalty talk. Again, it's a word I don't like because I feel Mm like nine out of 10 times it's used in like a negative way. Like I thought you were loyal to me, you know, right. Right. You have no, you betrayed me Where, where ultimately it's like, we're all just trying to help each other. And if we, do something if we're successful on our own mm-hmm. the hope is that we'll be able to bring this to the, the right. people we've worked with and not just ditch them right so to me it's like important to remember everyone that's like helped you along the way and help them as much as you can but there's if i put you know plucked an actor out of obscurity and put him in my short film and that short film went to sundance and he got to be the lead of the next fast and the furious movie i wouldn't expect anything I don't. Yeah. I wouldn't expect him to owe me anything. I would just right. be happy for him, and right. hopefully, it would elevate the profile of my short film. Honestly, I think it just comes down to communication, and also knowing that you're going to have more ideas. Right. Like, there's not a single idea that you have that is the one. Right. Like, if if George Lucas had sold Star Wars to someone else, he would have had a new idea. 
period. Right. Like, he would have executed it. He would have. Indiana Jones. Yeah, Indiana. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Exactly. Um, so, so I think having that confidence and knowing that like you have other ideas and you're going to continue to come up with them and then communicating with people. Right. Cause the know? loyalty concerns usually come out of fear of like, mm-hmm. Oh, my friend and I did this thing together and my friend's becoming so successful yeah, and I'm never going to be successful. Yeah, yeah. And he's a jerk for not taking me with him. Right. When in reality he probably couldn't take him with him. Right. Well, and I think that, um, you know, separate from creative partnerships, like writing and producing and directing that sort of like high like above the line sort of stuff. I find it's very challenging for me uh, on the crew and actor level because I work with a ton of wonderfully talented people who uh, I would not be where I am without the help of these crew members, without without a shadow of a doubt. So many favors early on when I didn't have the money to pay someone anything, um, lending me their time, lending me their gear, all of that stuff. And so I'm, there's a handful of like film school buddies in particular that I'm always looking out for and always trying to right. like make sure, you know, you bring along as best you can. But there are realities of like, yeah, if you got an episode of Handmaid's Tale tomorrow, you right. probably couldn't bring I any pro- of your crew. I probably can't. And um, I think that the solution there, honestly, is a phone call. You know, maybe you can bring them on as an operator or something like that, or you know, as a second. Like there are ways to carve out opportunities for people and it it can be as simple as just like hey man i got this great thing you know most people most sane people know their experience level so like i'll i'll use a a couple friends actually as an example i have a friend who uh shot a ton of stuff for a director that director sold a script that he developed and is producing it with literally the biggest names in hollywood like imagine the biggest names it's them. Steven Spielberg. Yes. Okay. I mean, I'm, I can say it It's because it's in the trades now. It's like Amy Pascal, who used to run Sony, Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, and uh, Meryl Streep. Yeah. Right. So like a uh, dear friend of mine. Left wing, <laughs> yeah. liberal snowflakes. Yeah. Yeah. So the biggest movie stars in the world, right? One of my best friends is a DP who shot a bunch of stuff for this guy. He knows that Steven Spielberg isn't going to hire him to go shoot this movie and no one's mad about it. You know what I mean? He like, he's the most excited you could possibly be for his friend. And so as long as you're surrounding yourself with people like that and like looking out for them as best you can and, and you make a phone call when it's like, when you think that there's the potential that someone's feelings could be hurt, it's as simple as like, Hey, you know, we're all professionals. You know, I'm looking out for you. I'm so sorry that it didn't work out this time. Um, you know, I don't want you to find out about it from someone else, but I had to go with someone different this time around. Right. And to wrap it back around to your suggestion from the beginning, even though it's super obvious, it's just worth restating, is that if you tell each other what exactly you want to get out of the project at the beginning of the project, it, it's really helpful. I think I talked about this before, but I did a pilot presentation a couple of years ago with my friend. Uh, I shot it like I was the DP. I edited it. I directed it. I did the sound mix color. I did everything by myself. Um, I had some friends help on the production and, you know, we got all the actors to work for free. Uh, but it was written by right. the, my friend. And a few months later, in a con- conversation we casually had, he told me ABC Studios was attached to it and there was a production company. And he had never even told me that he was out pitching it or doing mm-hmm. anything with mm-hmm. it. 
we had, right after we finished it, we had pitched it to his manager who wasn't interested in a couple. I sent it to my lawyer who wasn't interested. Right. Um, and so we kind of thought it was dead. But then without me knowing, he all this stuff went along. And I got really upset. And I said, why, why haven't you told me about it? And he said, well, it's, you know, it's my show, you know, and you made this great sample. and It was really fun. Uh, but this, you know, I'm the writer. I wrote this and it stars me. I created it. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but the reason you got all these meetings is because of, of like, the work you did. Yeah. yeah. It's I, I'm the one that infused it with the tone and the style and the editing. We totally, I rearranged the whole script. I pitched, you know, a bunch of new scenes that you added. Not to mention, you know, I shot it mm-hmm. and paid for half of it you know, the pilot right. presentation. So it just doesn't seem like you can cut me out that, that much. And he's like, well, I, I don't know. Just tell me what you wanted me to do. I said, well, put it, you know, a stipulation that I have to be a producer on it if it gets made. And he said, no, we can't do that. Like, why would somebody want you <laughs> to be a producer on it? Sure. And so I was complaining about this to a friend of mine who's also an actor and sold a couple of shows. And he said, well, He's right. I mean, are you, what can you contribute to this project at this point? Obviously not being the mm-hmm. ex- the famous director for the pilot, obviously right. not being an experienced TV producer, and obviously you're not like a TV writer. So why does he need you? And also, why do you want to be a part of it? Like, do you want to do? Would, yeah. You know, everyone wants to sell a TV show and direct sure, sure, sure. a cool genre action based comedy show. Yeah, it was very that's gritty, sounds, but great pretty comedic fun. actors. Yeah, 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 I guess that's good. Like a comedic breaking bad of sorts. Uh, so, yeah, it's obvious why I would want to be with it, want to be a part of it. But I learned like a really big lesson. A, I was like really upset with my friend because, like you said, he could have just said, hey, by the way, I'm pitching this, but right. I'm going to do like, this, yeah. you know, do it in this way. Um, well, again, it comes out of that fear of like, you saying no, like, Hey, I, I shot this. I own this, you know, that's right. why he didn't bring it up. Right. right. Um, but also I maybe did jump onto a project and put a lot of work into something that didn't really have an upside for me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really figure that out until we finished the project and I right. put my weeks of work into it. Right. And called in all my favors and all that stuff, you know? So, I mean, I don't think anyone ever needs to like be too cautious in Hollywood or worry about their ideas being stolen or all that stuff as much as they do, especially newer people. But it is really smart to figure out when you're partnering with people how much of a team you are versus mm-hmm. how much you're just working with each other on this project. And also knowing what you want out of it. You know, I think there are a lot of instances where we work for companies that are younger and newer and um, I think especially in the digital world where a director is really EPing in a significant way, um, but not contractually EPing in the way that uh, TV is or getting paid for it, frankly. Right. Um, you have to be, you have to just know the terms, right? Like in most circumstances, I know what I'm getting paid for and what I'm doing extra. And I know the reason that I'm putting in that extra work is because I want the work to be good so that it gets me new jobs, basically. Right. So there is an upside for like having a tremendous sizzle reel with a, you know, with a thing that becomes a TV show and all of that, that there is an upside for that. It's that it's good work that you can show other people. And if it becomes a TV show, you still get to say, I directed the proof of concept. Right. You know what I mean? Which I guess would have been my strategy, but. I don't but know. You didn't know that at the top, right? Yeah. 
I, w- I just would have stipulated that I have some ownership of it. You know, and that's usually what like a lawyer does is they just make sure you right. are attached to the future of any project you do. Right. Well, and to be fair, um, like a clean chain of title, right, which is what we're talking about, who owns what, how many parties are involved, all of that stuff, that can be a deal breaker for companies. Right. You know, they want one person. They want to be like, oh, this person, person owns it. They're moving forward with us. It's all very tricky, you know. And so I think the only course of action is just to own your mistakes, you know, and um, to be forthright with people. You know, I, th- I think maybe before we move on, there there is one other thing to or point to bring up is like um, we talk about like as the director, we're looking at it as we're the top of the pile. But there are plenty of instances where these companies are growing off of our hard work. I mean, we'll use Sawhorses as an example because they're good buddies. You know, you look at that reel, there's a lot of work that, you know, we've all done that um, makes them look cool and gets them the next job. And it's tricky because sometimes we're up for jobs for them and sometimes we're not. And um, I think because there's an understanding that we all look out for each other and hire each other whenever we can and bring each other work, that makes it uh, okay, makes it fine. But it is kind of this weird personal thing. Do you know what I mean? Where it would be easy to get your feelings hurt if you didn't know the the rules of the game a little bit. That was kind of my next thing is production companies and loyalty. Like, are you, do you feel any obligation to turn down a, a production company that propositions you to work for them because you know that they are bidding against a different production company that you work for? You know, it's funny. I have a lot of anxiety about it because, um, I think we're kind of both in the situation where we've got people pitching us all the time and you would hate for them to look stupid or embarrass them because they do such good work by us. Uh, if they were pitching us and then they found out that someone, some other company was using our work to bid on a job as well. Right. You know, that's where it gets really sticky. I mean, the problem is, is that back in the day, you know, the 90s or whatever, rostered filmmakers were assigned paperwork. They were exclusive and they were paid retainers. And Mm -hmm. so those companies had real honest to goodness ownership over a directing roster so that they knew that they had exclusive rights to pitching that person, to shopping that person around. That's because of the way everything is non-union now and... Budgets are smaller, but the work is better, and there's more appetite for it. All that stuff has changed, so it's there's so much work being tossed around right now that you kind of do want to diversify and make sure that you're getting your name out there a bunch of different places. So I kind of just uh, talk to people. Yeah. You know, again, it's just like, hey, this company's interested in me. I'd love to like be on their list. Is that going to be a problem? I just met with this new company on Friday that I really, really liked a lot, but they would be bidding pretty much com- exactly against the this other company I signed with in December that I haven't really gotten much work from yet. Obviously, the you know, it would be ideal to just have all these companies send my stuff out to everyone and whatever bites, you know, wh- wherever I get a job, I do that job. But I, I know in reality, I have to tell one company yes and one company no. And that's, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, it is... Again, it's that thing where it feels personal. It is personal, right? And that that's really a challenge. I think the you're in the commercial world like climbing pretty significantly. Like I don't have any broadcast proper spots. All my spots, even if they were 30s, I don't think had um, 
broadcast buys. I think they were all like pre-roll and stuff. Um, and so, so you're in a, a bigger league. You're climbing pretty significantly, pretty quick. And like, there's real money to be made in that work, you know, not that online isn't lucrative, but like, you know, oh, it's, yeah. it, you level up. I'm in a slowly way. Yeah, trying to work with bigger brands. Yeah. I think that that makes it much more competitive when it comes to who you're signing to and rostering to like smaller jobs, you know, like a bunch of people can kind of all right. buy for it. I actually asked the guy that decides whether they sign directors or not. Um, I said, you know, why? I'm just curious. Why would you care if I was exclusive with you or not? Because if I'm working, if I'm shooting commercials with other people, I'm building up my reel and Mm -hmm. makes it easier for you to sell me. And he said, well, like when you get to kind of the big leagues, every director is at a production company and you just don't look like big director if you're like repped by 10 production companies and this the pool gets smaller there's only so many big level agencies out there and so as they become more aware of you they associate you with one of those houses you know like um that all of those different agencies have their own identity and they're looking to carve them out and they also want you to be their you know specialty person for whatever it is you're specializing in so like oh i would be the comedy guy at whatever place I'm at. And if there was another comedy guy at that place and he or she was too close to me, it would be a problem, you know? Yeah. Unless they were a big draw and then so busy that work trickled down to me, that would be okay, actually. Yeah. That was actually when I signed with this company last year, the, his pitch to me was, I have a great comedy guy, but he's always busy and I need another great comedy guy. Yeah. But, you know, so far it hasn't turned into anything. So yeah. I'm assuming first comedy guy is getting all the jobs that, that I want to get. I feel like you should, should call yourself action comedy guy now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you like kind of want to... it from Oren? <laughs> yeah. 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 Action comedy guy, Kaplan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, but I just kind of just specify what... a little bit. You right. Know? And I think even on my website, it's like an... I write like an LA based genre director or something. I have something yeah. about that. And I've been telling everyone, like I want to do kind of action comedy. VFX you want to stuff. do Warren or you do do. I want to focus on that stuff. You want like, to focus or you focus on. I am focusing on that stuff. You focus on. I'm, yeah, I'm slightly, slightly <laughs> out of focus, a little soft on it, but yeah. Okay. The final loyalty thing is, so the, there is a person, an actor that I met that introduced me to this company. Let's say I do end up working with this company. There's an actor that I just worked with one day. I signed an audition and worked with one day and we maybe emailed two times over the last two years. Is there, do I owe him anything if I get work through his introduction? I wouldn't say so. If I, if I were that guy, absolutely not. I, like an email, like, hey, man, I, we connected. It was really great. Thanks so much. Um, I mean, throw him in a role if he's right for something, you know, if you can. But this business runs on referrals, you know, right. like it's all connections and stuff. So you so. think you're not being disloyal if you're forgetting referrals? Like if you someone introduces you to someone else, you don't owe the introducer anything. No, I unless they're so your agent or manager. I'll say this. I introduce people to other people all the time um, because I like to. And I have not once have I thought, oh, this person owes me anything for it. Right. Maybe a little bit of credit, you know, like if we all run into each other at a party, like maybe a 
Well, what like, if you, you know, what if you introduce Judd Apatow to an actress you had just worked with, and they um, become a superstar, and she becomes a superstar, and they never say anything to you again? Does that bother you? No, no, not really. I think, um, yeah, not really. Like that, that stuff happens on smaller scales. That happens all the time. You know, th- sure. There's a little bit of ego bruising again if you kind of all run into each other, and they forgot that you connected them. But also, who cares? Like that happens all the time, and I do that to other people all the time. You know, I think we were joking off mic before the show about how uh, how often people will you'll introduce someone to someone else as a crew member. And then a couple jobs later, they'll be like, oh, I've got the best gaffer. And you're like, yeah, dude, I introduced you to. You can give somebody a hard time if you're friends, you know, but beyond that, it's not important. I think the more you, the more energy you spend on being mad about that connection and what they're, how they don't give you credit for it is less time that you could spend working on your own stuff or connecting other people. Because I think that having a reputation as a person who is looking out for other people is great and lucrative and nice to be as well. It's like a win, win, win all the way around karmically and business wise. I find it weird. Sometimes I introduced my friend Nick with this guy to this guy, Mm -hmm. Jed Weintraub, who was looking for an editor. And I was like, Oh, I just met this editor. Here's his info. And I hadn't heard from either one of them for a year. And a year later I saw Jed and Nick came in to the room. I was at Jed's office and he's like, oh, yeah, this is Nick. He's like one of our top editors doing this TV show. Do you know him? And I was like, uh, well, I introduced you to him, but I've never heard from anyone <laughs> since then for the last year. So, yeah, I know. So it wasn't like I wasn't upset at all. It was I just thought it's weird that when after I introduced people, they didn't say like, hey, just so you know, it worked out. You know, so to yeah. me, like, that's what I like is like, hey, thanks for the intro. We're going to do something or thanks for the intro. It didn't work out. I've actually stopped. I used to refer, go really out of my way to refer people. Um, but now I will not refer anyone that I don't absolutely 1000% love mm. because I've referred a couple people that weren't that didn't great, land. that I didn't know that well. Yeah. And I'm like, and then now it's my fault where I didn't even <laughs> want to be involved in the first place. We've been talking for a while, so maybe we'll save our other topics and some listener questions uh, till the next episode. Because I want to get into unpaid endorsements. I have a good one today. Unpaid endorsements. All right, Oren. You're so excited about your endorsement. You haven't told me what it is. Hit me. What's your unpaid endorsement? Well, hopefully you don't know it already. But it's a video that my friend sent me this morning of about storyboarding by the Coen brothers. Have you seen that video? I think it's really old. But they, you know, they storyboard all their movies. Um, and they did Blood Simple. They did the mm-hmm. boards from Blood Simple. And somebody edited a video of Mm. the Coen brothers talking about storyboarding and why they do it while you see a scene from Blood Simple overlaid with the boards they did for each shot. Mm -hmm. And that's all cool and, you know, nice. But the best part of it is Frances McDormand, who did you know she's married to Joel Coen? Sure, yeah. Oh, I had no idea. She said this thing at the end, which I found fascinating, which was that when she gets offered a role, she asks the director if... He or she storyboards. And she said a lot of them say that they don't. And a lot of them say they, they do. Uh, but they're all rather, you know, uh, surprised that an actress is asking them if they storyboard or not. Mm-hmm. And she said that the reason she does it is living with the Coen brother and being sure. having been in so many movies. 
is that she has realized that this medium is its not an actor's medium, it's not a director's medium, it's an editor's medium, according to her, and I happen to agree with her. And when you storyboard, you are like editing the movie in your brain before you shoot it. And the mm-hmm. storyboard it is teaching you how the movie is going to come together, the mm-hmm. parts, what you're going to see. And so she thinks, she said she hears all the time, oh, this director is great with actors. And she says... Well, I'm, I have a lot of experience. I'm, I'm not worried about actor. the acting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll take care of the acting. I just want to make sure it's edited right. Right. Um, and so that's why I ask people if they storyboard. You know, we've talked about storyboarding. And I, I do it. I, when I do it, I feel better visually about what I'm shooting than when I don't do it. Um, but I, I just loved that she acknowledged my suspicion mm-hmm. that editors are important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I think that storyboarding for me, I've fallen out of love with it a little bit. I think partially because my abilities as an illustrator have kind of flagged a little. You know, like I, um, I used to draw a lot and have stopped over the years. And so I don't, um, I'm not as facile with kind of composing a shot. Right. Well, the Cone um, Brothers storyboards are really bad. They're yeah. Like chicken scratches, and then they hire a storyboard hire artists a real to, artist to do redraw it. them. But yeah. But yeah. they. But you know, it also there's a difference between putting together a scene with dialogue, mm-hmm. dri- driving the scene versus a look, an insert shot, a movement, a you know, a wide shot that is telling us something. So it's like if you're using the camera to move the f- story forward mm-hmm. more than dialogue then those, that's when the storyboard really, I think, comes to play. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, we're really talking about cinema instead of jokes, and I kind of want to get back to a little bit more cinema than jokes. So um, noted, I will definitely check that out. And well, let, let me real list. quick mention, oh, it was on Blacklist, you know, the website? Mm-hmm. Sure. B-L-C-K-L-S-T, Blacklist with no vowels, and the video is called Storyboarding Blood Simple. So if you want to look it up look up uh, those words and then while we're on the topic of how blocking uh, mm-hmm. how dialogue scenes a lot of times end up just being shot with like a wide shot and two sure. mediums yep um, and how to try to get around that there's the an episode of script notes it's the 300th episode where they have Chad McQuarrie Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, talking about how he went from being a writer sure. to a writer director yeah really great episode He's doing, yeah, the new Mission Impossible, and he talks about how he is trying to figure out new ways to shoot stuff that aren't just, you know, mm-hmm. wide and medium shots, and it's really fascinating. So, yeah, those are my two unpaid endorsements. Check them out. My unpaid endorsement is the Boyhood is Out on Criterion Edition, and uh, the behind-the-scenes documentary on making that movie is so wonderful. Where can you see it? On the Blu-ray? On the Blu-ray. Is that the only place you can see it? You know, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> as we've talked about, I love buying Blu-rays. I'm back into it in a pretty heavy way. And, you know, I, I love the movie Boyhood. But the making of documentary... I, have, I Weirdly, I love the making of documentaries on... Richard Linklater movies, like the Dazed and Confused one, I, I genuinely like love it. I really cherish. It. I've seen that maybe more times than I've seen Dazed and Confused. Really? How? And yeah. that's another one that is probably hard to find. Uh, Let me Google it real quick. Yeah, I you, I wouldn't be surprised if that one's uh, around on the internet. But um, I think it did a really good job 
of reminding me what a wonderful uh, job it is to make movies, you know, mm-hmm. um, and how valuable it is to create a a set that is appreciative and warm and open and you know loose. And obviously, Richard Linklater is famous for doing that sort of stuff. But uh, but it just it was a really nice reminder of like the way in which I want to make movies, uh, and also kind of just talking about the process of making a movie over a decade is pretty incredible as well. So. Yeah, no boyhood. I mean that that's just it's like an idea that every filmmaker has but would never do and never could pull off. Link yeah. later just does it. Well, anyway, uh thanks for tuning in. If you want to write us a question or give us any feedback, then head to our iTunes page and do it in review form. If you want to make it private, you can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com uh or you can tweet to us, which is kind of the halfway point uh at justshootitpod. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Smitey Pileg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Unlow. Uh, music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And this episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe. Hey, thanks, Jay. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.